Hello, everybody. We're here, Crystal Kyle and friends. Um, we have an awesome, awesome interview upcoming. I can't wait for it. Before we get started, I'll address the elephant in the room. Uh, we are not in the studio, if you can't tell. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there's a very, there's a very clear reason for that. DC was basically on total and complete utter lockdown. And um, it was mission impossible in order to get there. You would have had to like bribe 17 National Guardsmen and some cops. And uh, even then they probably wouldn't let you in. So anyway, uh, this is not something that's going to continue for the next episodes. In fact, we'll be right back in the studio next week. Can I tell the lovely people, Crystal, who we have coming in next week or no? Yes, I think you should. Okay, so we have the awesome Justin Jackson coming in. L.A. Chargers running back. Now he's super involved in politics. Um, So he's just a great guy all around. He's a friend of mine, and he's also incredibly intelligent. He has, you know, he's got a lot of thoughts to share on the current political moment. So I can't wait for that. Um, But so we're doing remote. It does feel a little weird. Does it feel weird for you, Crystal, or no? I've been doing rising remote all week too, because Mm -hmm. we literally can't get to the rising studio is downtown, very close to the white house actually. And they close the Metro, they close the streets, they close, like you can't park and there are no parking garage. So it was literally impossible to get into the studio. So I guess I'm kind of like used to remote at this point, but yeah, I mean, listen, it's always nice to be in person and just creates a different conversation, but, um, it will be what it will have to be this week, I guess. That's true. I will say, for my part, I do prefer more being in person than being remote, but we'll make it work while we have to make it work. But let me also say, um, this is the first week that people have to tip the five bucks per month on Substack in order to see the video. For everybody who's listening to this through audio, I don't know what you're doing with your life. You obviously should get this through video, and then you'll be (laughs) able to see... You'll be able to see the lovely Crystal Ball. You'll be able to see the lovely Nina Turner. And, um, you know, it's I highly recommend it. I'm a little biased, but nonetheless, I will highly recommend everybody tips the five bucks per month on Substack to get the video. But of course, if you don't, then you'll always get the audio. I know a lot of you are listening to the audio right now, but it gets the secular talk guarantee, the stamp of approval that you're going to want to get it for video. And the people want to see your pretty face too, Kyle. Don't leave that part out. No, this ugly Um, mug. No, (laughs) they're looking for you and Nina and our guests. (laughs) (laughs) So um, definitely a big political week. Um, Inauguration. It's now officially President Biden and Vice President Harris and former president. It does feel a little weird. Like it kind of felt like the Trump era was just literally never going to end because every day in the Trump era felt like, I don't know, like a month. Um, So it was kind of weird watching him leave. And then of course he had to add this layer of surreal to it to be walking out to YMCA. (laughs) But, um, you know, it was also sort of disgusting and disheartening to watch just the lengths of fawning that the media immediately went to with the Biden administration. I mean, look, I get it. You're relieved Trump is gone. I am also relieved that Trump is gone. But you're supposed to have an adversarial relationship with these people. And you had David Chalian on CNN like, oh, the lights look like Biden's arms extended in a warm embrace. And you had their White House course, literally their White House correspondent, John Harwood, who was like, this is a rise to truth and amorality to morality. And, you know, just going on and on. It's it's sort of disgusting. It's sort of gross to watch. No. 
it's beyond disgusting. Um, the CNN invited on two of Kamala Harris's sorority sisters just so they could be like, this is an amazing historic moment. We love her so much. There are so many examples to go to of like, oh, the other one is in the very first um, press conference, the mm-hmm. White House press secretary, the first question, I'm paraphrasing here, but the first question was about like, do you believe in truth telling or will you right. like will you like smear the media like the previous administration did? And of course she was like, I think we should tell the truth. And then you had everybody was fawning over. Oh, oh yes, that's amazing. Truth isn't truth so wonderful. Yeah. So it was it was it was disgusting. But I will By say this way, though. Like just to pause you on that for one moment, like it's not like Joe Biden has a great record in terms of truth telling. Like this guy no. just in this campaign, forget about, you know, the eighties and the plagiarism and the lying about his college record and saying he came out of the civil rights movement when he really meant he lifeguarded at a pool that black people went to. Like that was what he really meant. <laughs> um, so even putting all of that history aside, like this guy in this campaign invented some story about like going to free Nelson Mandela or something like that. Say. Everyone just kind of like, shrugged like yeah well that's just joe it's fine he in in a debate with bernie he lied to his face repeatedly and was like that wasn't my position on social security and we it's like dude we have video of you (laughs) on the floor arguing like i'd love to make a deal to cut social security and medicare it's like almost verbatim he's just flat out saying it and bernie bernie was even taken aback because bernie said to him you don't believe this and he was like no he's like you never believe this did you say that joe and he's like no i didn't say it it's like that's great that honestly that's trump level lie right there i'm not saying they're equal in every way of course but that's a trump level lie where it's that bold Mm -hmm. brazen and that bold yeah no absolutely but if you listen to cnn or i didn't actually turn on msnbc at all but i'm sure they're saying the same stuff only more at all these are you know the most honest paragons of virtue you can possibly imagine the uh, slobbering only got even more aggressive the next day when they had Anthony Fauci at the presser. And of course, like, you know, what ordinary people really want to know is like, when am I getting my damn vaccine? Right? Like, that's the thing that people really want to know. But instead, they spent all this time on like, tell us how terrible Trump is. We've we've let like Trump is gone. And we still are getting all of the questions about, like, let's dunk on Trump, which, look, fine, I get it. He sucked. And his vaccine rollout, everything he did in coronavirus was absolutely terrible and horrifying, et cetera. But also focus on the now and, like, the current administration and try holding them to account as well. There was another embarrassing episode with CNN again where – They basically the Biden team fed them this line that it wasn't just that they had to rework the vaccine rollout plan, that there was no plan whatsoever. Now, look, the Trump plan was super shitty, but there was actually some plan. But CNN just allowed themselves to get completely spun on that and just reprint like basically a Biden press release because the Biden people want to lower expectations. So if they screw things up, they can blame it on Trump and say, look, we had nothing, literally nothing to work with. That's not that's just not accurate. That's not an accurate statement of the facts, but it doesn't even occur to them to really push and question whether that is actually true. I but I thought I actually thought that his plan was leave it to the states. Is that not correct? Isn't that actually his plan? Like we'll get you the vaccine and then it's on you. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the plan was shitty, but they're acting like there was nothing, like literally nothing. That was their line, was that there was no plan to rework. He was on calls with, there were calls with governors, Fauci was doing stuff. There was something there. So to just reprint without questioning whatsoever that there was absolutely nothing going on is just not an accurate reflection of events. And again, it gives the Biden people an excuse. So if and when they screw things up, they can just wholly blame it on Trump and take no accountability for themselves. Well, I have no doubt that there's going to be a lot of stenography happening because CNN and MSNBC and even the nightly news and a lot of these outlets just they philosophically are in agreement and alignment with corporate Democrats. So like it's going to be they're going to just sort of repeat uncritically what they say, which is disgusting. But let me ask you, though, did you have at any point did you feel a sense of relief? Did you have a moment at the fact that Trump is gone? Did you did you go like, like I could actually exhale, I could breathe a little bit, even though it's bad, it's not as bad as it was? Or did you just not have that moment at all? I had that moment a little bit. I did have that moment a little bit. But I think it was sort of like, Honestly, watching all the people who are pretending like Joe Biden is some kind of a real solution um, kind of tempered my relief at that moment. Because, look, I think Biden is going to be significant. Like, it's not close. Biden is going to be significantly better than Trump. Already, some of the things that he's done to roll back the Trump era and end the Muslim ban and cancel the Keystone XL pipeline, like already those things are positive and um, going re-entering the New START treaty with Russia. All the, those are all really significant good things. But if you imagine that Joe Biden is actually a solution to the the place that we find ourselves and the fact that we ended up with fucking Donald Trump to start with, like you've got to be delusional. I mean, Joe Biden is as much an architect of this current moment as anybody else. He was involved, if not leading the charge, on a lot of the decisions that led to the country being so disgusted, so corrupt, so unequal, you know, just in such a terrible place where they would even think about voting for someone like Donald Trump. So that, I guess, sort of sinking feeling that I got watching the coverage tempered the relief that I did feel at seeing Donald Trump out of the White House. What about you? Yeah, for me, it was a little bit of a seesaw effect because I would I would see stuff that I liked and then I would immediately see stuff that I didn't like. And so mm -hmm. here, I'll read everybody. I just want to read everybody the executive orders. He signed 17, I think, in his first day. It was a mask mandate on all federal property, um, creating the position of COVID-19 response coordinator, ending the Muslim ban, as you alluded to, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, as you alluded to, withdraw the interior rule, withholding federal funds from sanctuary cities and the construction of the border wall, uh, rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, have the U.S. go back to the World Health Organization because Trump had left it, reaffirming mm -hmm. DACA. Um, there were some LGBTQ protections across the federal government, extend foreclosure moratorium through March, extend student loan deferral through uh, September, rescind Trump's order trying to block non-citizens from being counted in the census. Um, and then there's a few more. One uh, the criminal justice one and one involving the Trump's regulations, one another one involving climate change. So like I would see those and I was genuinely happy when I saw that. And I did have this sense of like, well, these are just unequivocally good. But then immediately after I saw those, I saw that um, Blinken was talking in front of some committee and mm -hmm. Blinken basically was like, we agree with Trump uh, on his Venezuela policy and we're going to keep mm -hmm. trying to overthrow that government. And then I saw 
the thing no, about no, Kyle, they're going to restore democracy. Those, that's the way to phrase it. <laughs> then I saw in Iran, they did, um, they, they're like, they originally were saying, we're just going to get back in the Iran agreement. Now what they're saying is, no, they need to first get back in it and be compliant with it. And then after we see that they're already doing that, then we'll get back in right. it. So they're already back. And why would, why would Iran do that when we're the ones who ripped up the agreement in the first place? We're the ones we who ripped- walked away. Yeah, we walked away and now we're like, okay, but you get back in and then maybe we'll get back. Like, are you are you kidding me? Get the fuck out of here. So like, I did have these moments of like a sigh of relief, but then immediately after I'm just slapped across the face and reminded like, yeah, this is why I was never excited for Joe Biden. And this is why it's like, I knew it, it was it was going to be like, I knew it was going to be like this. For every good thing, there's right. a bad thing. Right. And on Russia, like even within the Russia policy, like they're getting back in new start. Good. Right. Arms control. Great. But then in that same in that same news release, they're like, but we're going to be tough and aggressive. There's going to be costs and we need a new intelligence assessment on the threat from Russia, et cetera, et cetera, which is, of course, the, the remaining brainworms from Russiagate. And it's also just this instinct to whatever Trump did, we're going to do the opposite. So Trump got out of the new start de- treaty. We're going to get back in. That's good. But Trump talked and was really super nice to Russia rhetorically. So we're going to do the opposite just because it's different from what Trump did, which is a stupid way, obviously, to approach foreign policy, needless to say. But I think what you're speaking to, Kyle, gets to this sense. And and this is what we expected, right? Biden recognizes that there is a crisis in the moment because, you know, who could not recognize that thing? Um, But he wants to just put a Band-Aid on it and then get back to normal. Well, normal was a disaster. Normal was a disaster that was co-created by Joe Biden and the rest of the neoliberal establishment, along with the Reaganite Republicans and the radical, you know, libertarians that have infected the ideology in that party. So he wants to put a Band-Aid on and then just get back to normal. That's not going to do. So when you look at these executive orders, yeah, a lot of it is like sending a few good things Trump did, like the eviction moratorium, student loan debt forbearance, um, and rolling back the bad things, some of the bad things he did, getting back in Paris climate, um, canceling, recanceling Keystone XL pipeline, rejoining the World Health Organization, those sort of like rolling back of the Trump era. But there's an opportunity here to take aggressive FDR style approaches here where you recognize the crisis and you don't just think, okay, we can just patch things up and go back to things being okay, where you recognize like, no, we've got to make some bigger fundamental structural changes. So rather than talking about one time $2,000, now $1,400 checks, we should be talking about UBI. We should be talking about monthly checks rather than talking about, hey, we're going to have funding to you know distribute a vaccine. You should be talking about hey, we're going to make sure everybody has health care, universal health care, that that's a guarantee if you're an American citizen. Those are the sorts of things that should be happening right now in this crisis when the American people are open to it and there's a political opening for it. And instead, he's committed to applying the smallest possible Band-Aid that he can potentially get away with. Now, is that better than Trump? Yeah, Trump wasn't going to, Trump was not only going to not apply the Band-Aid, he was going to like rip the wound further open and make the blood gush out at an even more aggressive rate. But 
is that sufficient to keep us from winding back up in this same place again? And whether it's in two years or four years or eight years with a, a, a devastated population that feels completely um, like they've been just shat upon for years and years and years, rightfully so. No, it's not nearly sufficient for that. <laughs> I'm just laughing because Crystal Ball just said shat upon. <laughs> I don't think that makes rising. I think that only makes Crystal Kyle and friends. That's, that's, what that's I think. special for you guys. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yes, as you're talking and you bring up UBI, my thought was like, imagine it like we wish this was the kind of party that they would pass universal basic income, $2,000 a month through reconciliation. Could you imagine that? It passes the House, it gets through the Senate with reconciliation, and then Biden signs it. Like, that's the kind of party that we really want it to be. But the other warning that I wanted to give on top of the one that you were just giving is that also look out for the Weasley stuff, because there's going to be a lot of Weasley stuff. And the best mm -hmm. example is the ethics pledge, where Trump on his way out the door rescinded this rule, basically banning lobbying. And Biden gets in and he basically signs off on like, no, 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 we're going to bring back this ban of lobbying. But then come to find out there are loopholes you could drive a Mack truck through. Like it's a giant loophole. I think Neera Tandon is in is in charge of giving people waivers <laughs> for it. So it's like it's just a slap He's in the face. Pick it up. And even like I'm even concerned in the wording of apparently Joe Biden signed an executive order to raise um, the minimum wage to $15 an hour for federal contractors. But the headlines are a little creepy because all the headlines are like he started the process to raise it to $15 an hour for federal contractors. And I'm like, mm hmm. Can't you just raise it to $15? Does it, is it really a process? You got to go through a process in order to get that done? So anyway, um, I'm reserving judgment. If he actually does end up raising it to $15 an hour federal contractors, great, wonderful. I'll give him credit. But like I said, you, you do have to be careful of how weaselly they are because they like to do things where nominally you give them credit and then it's at, you come to find out a little bit later, like, we didn't do the thing that you thought we did. Well, and let me ask you this question. So like the $2,000 checks are a perfect example. And even UBI is a perfect example. If you use budget reconciliation to get Americans $2,000 a month, you would, you would crush in the midterms. You crush. would win re-election. You would get a broader majority in the Senate. You would devastate the Republican Party. I mean, they're devastate. already on their knees and kind of screwed. You would like, this would be a death blow to them. Mm -hmm. But there's no way they'll do it. So what is that? Like, is that just, is that pure corruption. ideological opposition? Is it corruption? Like, where? what is your explanation so, for why they would never, ever, ever do that? First of all, it's both of those things. But I think the original sin is the corruption, where most of the people who make up the elected Democrats, they do take money from big pharma and for-profit health insurance companies and Wall Street and the military industrial complex. So they do tend to believe like, I'm kind of serving them as my primary constituency and like the people are, are almost like a little bit of an afterthought. So part of it is the corruptions, their priorities are all out of whack. But then the other part of it is, yeah, a lot of these people have also internalized the ideology of neoliberalism. And so they think like, What's good for business is what's good for the American people. Like they all still have that Reagan Reaganomics brain rot a little bit. You know, it's differing mm -hmm. degrees. Like, of course, the Democrats want slightly higher marginal uh, top marginal tax rates on the wealthy, like 39 percent versus 35 percent. Right. But they, they do tend to believe that that's not the right thing. Like, I guarantee you there are economists who are whispering in their ears going, 
just like what's his face said, Larry Summers was it? He's like, oh, it'll overheat yeah. the economy if you give people two thousand. Like, what, what are you talking about? Are you kidding me? People desperately need money, and if you give money to people who need money, they're gonna spend it in the broader economy, and it's gonna help the overall numbers. So it's just, I think that it's both things. It's corruption, and then it's also ideology that a lot of these people have sort of drunk the Kool-Aid on Washington, D.C. standard neoliberalism. Yeah. Well, and, and what corporate America, corporate America actually has gotten behind some kind of stimulus, including 1400 or $2,000 checks. I one think time. Goldman Sachs. Cheap. One time. And that's the right. important thing because, okay, one time gives people spending money. They can go shopping. They can keep buying lots of stuff on Amazon. They can keep getting their groceries one time. Good for them. If you have people who actually aren't terrified month to month of like starving and getting evicted and keep kicking, like that's a method of control. That's how you can persist as a gigantic corporation paying people eight bucks an hour or whatever is the, you know, minimum 725, um, because they have no other choice. And so you can get away with treating them like shit and paying them like shit and giving them zero benefits because that you have that tool of control. So the minute that you give people too much and they have other options, then people start having actual power within their own lives rather than just having to submit to whatever the local gigantic corporation wants from them. Correct. That's all true. And now we have two shits and a shat. <laughs> from crystal ball in the conversation <laughs> you keeping track you want you want to drop some f-bombs just to be edgy you i mean i'm sure I, that's gonna happen at some point <laughs> <laughs> all right well um, listen my my final point before we hop into the interview i, I just yeah. want to say i do think that my my general so i was arguing beforehand i bet what will happen with biden is the first day and maybe the first week people are going to be pretty happy with a bunch of the stuff he does and then after that there's going to be a giant fall off where it's like total gridlock total obstruction from the republicans and to the extent that we get anything through it's all going to be right wing approved things like some sort of grand bargain with social security and medicare and cutting it so that's my fear i do think my prediction up to this point has been kind of spot on like there's still plenty of executive orders that i look at i'm like oh that's good that's good that's good but the crash is going to come soon ladies and gentlemen you'll be pretty unhappy in in short order it'll be you know after a week everything will just plummet look if joe biden got everybody two thousand dollar checks quickly and got the vaccine distributed, he would be immensely popular. Trump has set the bar extraordinarily low. People are desperate for a little bit of good news and a little bit of getting back to normal. Is that a long-term strategy for restoring the country and and fixing what ails us? No. But would it be enough politically for the short term? Absolutely. Do I think he's even going to deliver on those promises? I really was thinking that he would. Now, It's not looking so great, especially on the checks. I'll withhold judgment on the vaccines, but especially on the checks. Already walked back the amount, already walked back the timeline. Not a good sign. But what is a good sign is the fact that we may have Nina Turner in Congress. Let me get all her accolades here. So she is a candidate for Congress in the 11th Congressional District of Ohio. She's a former Ohio state senator. She is former national campaign co-chair of the Bernie Sanders campaign and host of the Hello Somebody podcast, the one and only Nina Turner. All right. The one and only Senator Nina Turner. It's so great to see you, Nina. How are you? You as well, Crystal and Kyle. I am doing just fine. So I actually want to start in earnest with that question of like, 
How do you feel this week watching Biden be inaugurated? We've got Bernie Sanders now, chair of the Senate Budget Committee. You're making an incredible run for Congress. Like, how are you? How are you thinking and feeling about things? I'm good. You know, everything doesn't always happen exactly the way that we plan. I never thought that I would necessarily be running for this seat in this particular moment. Uh, many people may not know that I was interested in the seat in 2008 when our beloved Congresswoman Stephanie Tubbs Jones suddenly, uh, God, as I would like to say, had another plan and that started me to go into the Ohio Senate. So things don't, you know, that is one good example of how things don't necessarily go according to plan. Uh, getting back to Senator Sanders, of course, no doubt, leave no doubt. Wanted him to be the president in, in, in the race from 2016 and also 2020. That did not happen. And look at here, look at here, look at here. Our very own Senator Bernard Sanders from the great state of Vermont. Now as the chair of the. So who knew things have a funny way of working out. And then, yes, I am now running for Congress. So if any if there's any lesson to this, sometimes you go down the winding path, even if you didn't plan to go down that path and things can work out just fine. So, Nina, what are you most excited about in terms of your congressional run? Because from my perspective, it looks like everything's going great. It looks like you're, you know, you're killing it with small dollar donors in a way that's almost unique among people running for Congress. So what's the most exciting thing so far? Especially on the progressive side, Kyle, I am so excited from the outpouring of love and support that I'm getting from the progressive movement. And that is within my state. Let me be very clear, homegirl, daughter of Cleveland, because uh, believe it or not, some of my detractors are trying to paint me as not being a Clevelander, if you can believe that. But I digress. Just the level of love, and it just really shows that all of the, that I poured in, you and Crystal both know I poured in everything for the last five to six years on this journey of really standing up for the people of this nation and carrying my state, my district, my city with me every step of the way. And to see that love being reciprocated in this way, I mean, it, it definitely brings tears to my eyes as I reflect that night because I'm a teary kind of sentimental person in that way. But the very people who are suffering in this nation, Crystal and Kyle, are the people who are pouring into this campaign. Our average donation right now is $26. Uh, we have over 22,000 and counting uh, unique contributors <laughs> into this campaign. And I'm just, I'm heartened by it because I noticed but that they were talking at them. It was me talking with them and to them and embracing them and just being on this magnificent journey for justice together. So that by far has been just mind blowing for me because I know it's not lost on both of you. It's very hard to raise money and especially as a progressive. And Chocolate, you know, the, the 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 coffee color to a sister and harder. And so there's light years difference between when I ran in 2014 as the Democratic nominee in my state for secretary of state and my run right now. Nina, what got you interested in, in politics in the first place? Oh, my God. You know, a lot of my mentors in college, I had really great college professors. I would say... Even my grandmother, even though she didn't directly necessarily talk about politics, and you guys know I quote grandma all the time, and she is famous for it, even though she's not here to know it, for the three bones. 
but it, it, it was moments like that with her when she talked about service and she always said, be the best. And if you can't be the best, be next to the best, be so close to the best, then nobody can tell the difference. She all, all, always talk about how you have to give something back. And so in that way, I, I think she was talking about this kind of service, it, even if it was indirectly. And then my training as the oldest, oldest sibling, I mean, I'm the oldest child of seven children. Wow. Jeez. If that doesn't get you trained in training for running for politics, you know, you got to compromise. You got to make some demands sometimes. You got to let folks know you're not playing sometimes. Sometimes you got to be <laughs> have the velvet glove, you know, all of that. So that was a uh, training as well. But just having, you know, my parents, and even though my mom is not here now, and I know you both know the story, so I'm, I'm not going to go into it that will make me tear up. But she died at 42. Suddenly, aneurysm burst in her brain. I was in my early 20s seven children. My mother was the custodial parent. My dad is still here and one of my biggest champions ever. But life happens to people and they got divorced early and my mother took a different, different, different path that was really hard for her children. And so when she died suddenly like that, I became the automatic parent, not just big sister of six siblings because my youngest sister was 12 and we're all two years apart. You know, so I'm in my early 20s. So you can imagine just a very young family married and my son and my husband, and that was a lot. I, I didn't think that we were going to make it. So when I look at that moment to this moment, I just think about how incredibly blessed I have been. And I never forget that moment. I never, ever want to forget that moment. And I think what gives me my righteous indignation about standing up and speaking the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth in ways that sometimes some people don't like is because I have been in the category of the poor, the working poor and the barely middle class. And it's not for people not trying. My mother tried, but she was among the working poor. She tried very hard. Life is not a perfect path. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out for her. She came from solidly middle class. My grandparents were solidly middle class and she was the only child. And so logically you would say, well, why couldn't your mother make it? Why couldn't she do better? Why did she die poor? Because life happens to people and people deal with pressures differently. And what is the biggest shame on this country, one of the biggest shames, is that we have a system set up deliberately to crush people like her, to shame people like her. But you can be a mega corporation and go bankrupt 10, 20, 30, 30 times and be rewarded that you can bamboozle people and be rewarded for that. So it's not about individual failings. People are going to make mistakes. People are going to make failings and help. Even corporations will make mistakes. We're not, we're talking about greed on the backs and the necks of the everyday people in this nation and the trouble with Congress and other government is you got too many people there who either forgot where they came from or don't give a damn about where they came from or were already wealthy and so there is no working class lens we the three of us talk about that all the time in all of these sectors of power there's no working class lens so that was just a long way for me to say that i think the confluence of things in my life have brought me to this moment so you know what you just beautifully laid out there is actually one of the reasons why i'm 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 probably more excited for your congressional campaign even than I was, this is crazy to say, but even than I was for Bernie's presidential campaign. And the reason why I'm so excited by it is because I don't, I love Bernie with all my heart. I don't question him at all in terms of the policies, but sometimes I do question him on strategy. And the sense I get from you is that you and I are very much in alignment ideologically when it comes to strategy. And so my question for you is, 
this idea that I've been espousing on my show recently is what if you got the Justice Democrats to vote as a disciplined block of like 12 of them and they really decided we're going to take some Tea Party tactics and we're going to block every piece of legislation unless and until Joe Biden legalizes marijuana, eliminates student loan debt. Like you can make a list of, you know, five things and it doesn't have to be Kyle Kalinske's things. It could be Nina Turner's things. It could be any of the real progressive backbone fundamental issues. Would you lead that fight where you kind of corral a dozen justice Democrats where you really stand up to Biden? Because the media is going to hate you if you do that. Are you willing to take that fire from the media? We should do that. I mean, this is our opportunity. The moderate Dems lost uh, in this last election cycle. And so progressives can leverage. Power is meant to be leveraged. You can't squander that power, baby. You got to use it. The other side, the is it? Why can't the good guys use it and not be afraid of it? Power without using it is absolutely nothing. So absolutely, the justice Democrats, the Democrats, the progressive Democrats, pick your label. I would love to see the Black Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus and the progressives team up on, on a few issues. It doesn't have to be everything. Humanity is dependent on us. Literally, that's no exaggeration. You know, I had an elder, and she's not that elder because she's in her 60s, and I'm in my 50s, so if I call her an elder, but a, a, somebody that is older than I am. And she's a, she's a black woman. She's a nurse. She's out of Chicago. And she said, you know, Senator, I want to see the progressives. We didn't send them there to just fight against the Republicans. That don't mean nothing to me. Democrats are going to fight against Republicans. We sent them there to fight against the neoliberals. And she and she started an organization. Her name is Martise Chisholm. She started an organization called Good Trouble Matters. Hello, somebody. <laughs> Good <laughs> Trouble Matters. And so, yes, I, I want the Justice Democrats there, progressives, the Congressional Black Caucus, hell, we'll take others on some issues to come together and say that Good Trouble Matters and it's worth, it's worth it. Upset it. And you're right, Kyle. I've said for you years that we should employ some of the tactics of the Tea Party to the good. Because just because we didn't like their policy positions and what they were doing doesn't mean that the way they were wielding power, that's that's the how they wielded power and they made a demand and they made sure there was a consequence for not meeting their demand. Why can't we do that on the good side of the ledger? And Crystal and Kyle, if I can, because you just reminded me of something and I don't have this quote memorized. You guys know I'm a quote machine and I got to get this one memorized. But there too, and, and this is coming off of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because one of my pet peeves is that all of these people wax poetic and quote, quote the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And they, they're not going to be doers of the deed. And what I really like about Dr. Bernice King, which I didn't mean to say that, but since we're talk talking about she puts out a tweet to remind people. And this is one. She said, please don't act like everyone loved my father. He was assassinated. He was assassinated. A 1967 poll reflected that he was one of the most hated men in America. Most hated. Many who quote and evoke him to deter justice today would likely hate and may already hate the authentic King. That's coming from Dr. Bernice King. She is telling, I mean, that is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So the radical King book written by Dr. Bernice was these two quotes, if I can just share with you guys and all of your listeners, and you guys are kicking butt on this show. And I'm so glad you guys are together. I hope people can tell how excited <laughs> I am to be with you two. Two quotes besides my grandmother really are the foundational points of my campaign. One is 
what the people want is simple. Congresswoman Barbara Joy, what the people want is very simple. They want an America as good as his promise. That is what we should do with power. Make America as good as it's promised. That's one. And my other one is this new one, which was introduced to me by Norm Solomon of Roots Action. And this is what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said, power, because this gets back to what we're talking about, Kyle, what you asked. Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Mm. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's it. That says it That's all. That's it. So we got to make some demands and we got to correct everything that stands against love. Not having healthcare stands against love. Love. Gravel. took place, stood against love. You know, you name it. Not taking care of the environment stands against love. Not changing a rotten, racist, anti-black criminal justice system stands against love. And on and on. Yep, yep. That's where I'm at. Nina, how do you, I mean, how do you look at the Biden administration? How will you evaluate their actions? What's sort of the standard or the bar that you're looking for them to meet or exceed? I will say that the president did a good job in his speech. I mean, he hit he hit the things that needed to, he said the things that needed to be said. There And there's a however to this. One of the things he said is that this is a time of testing. Amen. He also said, he talked about unity. I want to add unity and action. See, we need unity married with some action. And because this administration not only has the presidency, they have both chambers of the Congress, this is a prime opportunity for the Democrats to really stand and deliver for the American people. I will say that the executive orders that he is signing is right on the money. We got to do more. There's more to be done. And that it is not enough to say those words without putting the power, what the King Jr. just said, behind it. So Medicare for all for me is not, we we got to have it. There is nothing that anybody can say to me to understand, feel otherwise. It is just totally unacceptable. And on the campaign trail, the current president was interviewed, and I forget who he was interviewed by, but people can go check the receipts. He was asked if Medicare for all passed and came across your desk. I want you guys to wrap your mind around the Herculean task of that reaching a president's desk. And you know what he said? He said he would veto it. Totally unacceptable. So where this administration is, or where, where this administration does the things that are right and good, I'm going to give them praise. Where they do things that I think are wrong, I'm going to say something about it. And where there are areas to push, I'm going to push. Working with does not mean acquiescing to. And I can work with anybody, but I'm not acquiescing to anybody because my constituents, if I am so blessed to lead this district, elected me to deliver for them. And at times that means confronting your own party, period, exclamation point. And if people want to know what kind of Democrat I am, because Kyle and Crystal, that is in question. 
Let me tell them. <laughs> I'm glad they asked the question. I am a Shirley Chisholm, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, Democrat, unbought and unbossed. I am a Fannie Lou Hamer, Democrat. When she got together with her white contemporaries and misses and, and, and said, you know what? The traditional Democratic Party not working for us. We're about to create a freedom party. And they challenged Lyndon Baines Johnson, President Lyndon B. Johnson. That's the kind of Democrat I am. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. FDR, the Economic Bill of Rights. And even in my home district, Mayor Carl B. Stokes type of Democrat. Congressman Lewis Stokes type of Democrat. Senator Howard Messenbaum, right here in my home state, type of Democrat. So if anybody want to know what kind of Democrat I am, that's the kind of Democrat I am. And because I love this party, but I don't worship any party, I don't worship any man or any woman. I worship God and baby, I serve the people. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so I'm going to work. We're we going to work together. I'm going to work with this administration. I'm, I will work with them, but I need them to put the needs of the poor, the working poor, and the middle class first. That's all I'm asking for. That ain't, I don't think that's too much to ask for. So, Nina, one of the things that um, Bernie did that for his run in 2020, people were able to point to and say he definitely has foreign policy experience now in a way that perhaps in 2016 people were questioning his foreign policy experience is that he worked across the aisle with Mike Lee to try to end the U.S. support of the genocide in Yemen being carried out by Saudi Arabia. So my question for you is, let's say you're a congresswoman and like a group of like four or five Republicans approach you and they say, I want to end the war in Afghanistan and I want to end the war in Iraq. Will you work with us Republicans, uh, Congresswoman Turner? What, what say you? Yes. Absolutely. Um, that's it. That's all. Yes. I'm, I can work with anybody that's working for justice, period. And I'm going to give an example, and I'm glad you brought that up. In, in 2014, Tamir Rice, you both may remember that, he was shot on the playground by police officers, killed, little boy killed, 12 years old. And I was just coming off a very hard Secretary of State's race. Democrats got handed all across the country. We really got handed here in the state of Ohio. And I only had a month and a half left on my, on my, on my term. I could have just said, you know what, but I can't, I can't do anything. Governor John Husted is a Republican. We don't see eye to eye on much. But, you know, I picked up the phone and I, governor, and I said, Governor, I'm calling you as a black mother in America, not as a state senator. And we got to do something. You have the power. We collectively have the power. We got to do something so that people in this state, but especially in my city, understand that, pe that people with power, with fancy titles, feel their pain and that what happened to Tamir Rice is unacceptable on any level. We had that. We had John Crawford III, who was shot in the Dayton area in a wall, in a wall. He was in a Walmart. You all may have remember hearing that story. He was picking yeah. up weapons that were being sold in the store. He was in his late 20s. A white person called the police and they came in and shot that man and killed him right then and there. And at the same time, we had the Brelo case percolating in Cleveland. If that, where these officers had chased a couple in a car. They, they said that they were being shot at. Turns out they shot into this 140 times. Bonnie and Clyde type stuff. Turns out this couple had no whatsoever. Zero, nada, nothing. And only one officer was at, at, at um, one officer was actually charged and brought to court he stood up on the hood of that car and shot into that car 40 times. Mm. He was not convicted. 
he got away. So all of that was swirling around the same time. I tell this story is because I called Governor Kasich so that we could act together. And because of that, there were no incidences of violence in our great state, zero. You know what we did? The governor signed an executive order the next day. He said, Senator, I agree with you. He created the task force on community and police relations the next day. And he made yours truly, along with his safety director, co-chairs. Now you got a progressive black woman with a month and a half left on her term and a conservative Republican governor joining forces to do what is what was right. And for the first time in Ohio's history, we have standards for law enforcement agencies in this great state. Now, 2015, 2014, 2015 seems a light years away from where we are now, but it was a start. And we did something that had never been done in this state, and I'm proud of it. So yes, I can work with anybody that wants to work to make crooked paths straight. Yeah. You made me, you made me tear me. up there. Sorry, Crystal. I just wanted to say that. I was starting to tear up as you were talking there. Go ahead, Crystal. <laughs> I was just going to say, and that doesn't mean that you support everything John Kasich's ever said or done or et cetera. But when the opportunity was there, you cared more about the progress than about maintaining some, you know, some moral signaling <laughs> about who you're willing or not willing to work with. I mean, Nina, I would love to get your perspective on That's Ohio, exactly actually. It. Because Ohio yeah. was the, the quintessential swing state, right? Ohio was the state where if at the presidential level you won it, then you won the presidency. And obviously that has changed. I mean, Donald Trump what won the state by eight, nine points. It wasn't even really close. But meanwhile, because other places in the country have shifted, Joe Biden's able to, to eke out a win for the presidency. But you know, what's going on in Ohio? Why has it shifted so much and become so much more Republican? Or, or do you think that that's an accurate characterization? No, I, I do think it is. I mean, he won the first time around. He won 80 of 88 counties. <laughs> Jesus Christ. In 2016. And then he increased that in 2020, even after all uh, after everything that he has done to turn this country upside down, he increased it. The Democrats in my state, we have got to come to grips with that and start to have a heart to heart conversation first internally. What say you? We need an autopsy, pretty much. We got to evaluate what happened in 2016 and do that without... It, it doesn't have to be a negative that you're going to do some self-reflection and figure out how we losing folks. How we losing folks that or they should be with us. The working poor, the types of people who were voting for Donald Trump. I understand why people voted for Mr. Trump in 2016. I didn't like it, but I understand it. He had a popular message. And Ohio got a rotten deal with the trade deals. Lots of people lost their jobs because of those deals. I even had students in my classroom who parents were impacted by that. So yeah, people were feeling some kind of way. And we gotta do some self-analysis and that doesn't have to be, you know, it's not some big negative thing. We gotta figure out why are we losing and especially in 2020, that Mr. Trump, or President Trump caused, how was it that he was able to increase his vote in Ohio. I believe that we can get Ohio back if we try, but we're not going to do that by having some false, some illusion percolating just to make us feel good. We got to figure out how we lost these people and how we get them back. And we got to talk to their material needs, period. And we're, we, we have not necessarily done that. 
you are one of the few people who, in my opinion, really does seem to unite different factions of the left that are oftentimes at each other's throats. And so my question for you is, what do you think about presidential candidate Nina Turner in 2024 or 2028? Woo! You know, there's a face- <laughs> Just went right for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a okay, Facebook page. Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got I got to get over this hurdle, and and that's serving the in the 11th congressional district. It's something that I've been wanting to do, tonight. but it is not lost on so many people. Even before this opportunity presented itself, we're already talking about 2024, and I'm really really honored uh, by that. I'm not gonna rule out anything, especially when you talk about 2028 or so. But I want to go to that Congress and do the best job that I can for the people who elect me and by extension this entire nation. That will be absolutely my sole focus, but I am humbled more than I can express in words that people actually believe in me in that way. Whether I ever do it or not, it is just the fact that you don't wake up every day and there are groups of people who believe that you should be the president of the United States of America. And uh, that's something I will carry with me forever. Nina, talk a little bit about, um, you have a, a deep Christian faith that I know is really important to you and your life and also in your politics. Just talk about how that informs your political views. Wow. I love that question, Crystal. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you is the golden rule in my faith. My mother was a preacher and my siblings and I had to go to church. We couldn't do any other thing in my mama's house unless you went to church. And that does inform me. And in ways that I don't think many people really understand, I guess for me, going to church eight days a week was not pleasant, but it did give me a reservoir of things that I can pull from now in my service. And so the best tenets of my faith, the do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or the scripture where Jesus says to, you know, the the haughty, the high-minded folks who had the fancy titles and thought they were doing the work of God, you know, pretty much where were you? And I'm paraphrasing, I'm giving it in the Turnerism. But when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I needed clothing, did you clothe me? When I was in prison, did you come see me? You know, those are two fundamental tendons, the golden rule and that particular scripture about what I believe is necessary for people, whether they're running for political office or not that we have to have a kind of connection to humanity. That is just the humane thing to do. And it drives me. The black church is so much a part of who I am that I could even if I wanted to. And I don't want to shake it because it does lead and guide me to be the kind of person that feels the pain of people deeply, not rhetorically, like in my soul, because I am one of them. And but by the grace of God, I could be one of them again. I could be in the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class again. My life's journey informs my love for people. And I don't believe that you can serve that which you do not love. You can't truly, you can fake it, but you can't truly serve people if you don't love them and if you don't have compassion and then empathy for what they are going through. Uh, The Congress waiting, you know, a stimulus check in March. And then not another, don't even get me started. Yes, my Christian faith informs my love 
of people and it is very much a part of who I am and I'm proud of it. I can tell you on the campaign trail, I've had people who are atheists, agnostics, people of other faiths all say to me, oh my God, Senator, if you ever started a church, I'm coming. I Listen, I don't know <laughs> what kind of faith, that ain't the faith I ascribe to, but if you ever do it, I'm coming. So yeah, it is very much a part of who I am and I'm so proud and I wish, I wish very much that my mother was around to, um, I wish she was here to be able to see her oldest daughter's journey. She sees. And I do, I do believe she's in heaven looking down saying, you, you go girl. She sees. She for sure would be absolutely yeah, proud of you. Yeah. Um, that was beautiful, by the way. Not to change topics too abruptly, um, my question is is about if Bernie had won and he came to you and said, you could have any position in my administration you want. You could be, you know, Secretary of Labor, um, Secretary of State, whatever it is, what would you pick? <laughs> I think I would have picked special advisor. Because there's some there's one thing about being in the cabinet, it's another thing to be able to be one of the voices, you know, similar to what I did as a national co-chair, in the ear of the person who is wielding that kind of power. Having a cabinet position would be wonderful, but it's you know, it's just that one area, which you could do many things with. But to me being a special advisor and, and being able to help guide and lead projects that were uh not just uh monolithic but but projects that kind of span the gamut is is where i would want to be if you force me to pick a cabinet position i don't know i i think i would have made a hell of a press secretary though i tell you that uh, <laughs> oh that's for sure absolutely think, baby i'll watch that daily <laughs> john now i done told you now we didn't answer this question how many times do you need us question don't start no stuff in here this morning you know the president working hard you know what we say Yes. <laughs> I don't know if they're ready for that, Nina. No, no, the, the press, the press corps is not ready for that. <laughs> you know, I want to pick up on you. You started to go down the path of don't get me started on the two thousand dollar checks, and now they're going to wait to March. But I do, in fact, want to get you started on that topic. I mean, because look. There was there were two really clear promises made by the Democrats in Georgia. We're going to get you $2,000 checks and it's going to happen immediately. And now it's like, well, we really meant 1400 because of the 600 that you got before and eh, we'll get to it maybe in March. Maybe we'll push it till April sometime. Maybe we'll try to get you a lesser check than what we ultimately promised. Totally unacceptable, Crystal. Again, you people are starving out there. This is not games. We're playing. We're playing with flesh and this is flesh and blood. These are not widgets, and it really just shows the disconnect. Your word is your bond, and so two thousand dollars. I mean, even Senator Warnock now, some of the melons said, you know, vote for me, two thousand dollars. Okay, we got to deliver. The people need it. This this is not the '90s where jobs were abundant. People have lost their jobs. They're losing their lives and their livelihood. And they need that. And that $2,000 one-time check is not even enough. We need to give people $2,000 monthly. We need to shore up small businesses in this country. We need to have uh, health care relief, i.e. Medicare for all. So $2,000. 
now and then two thousand dollars monthly that's the least that we can do and other nations are doing it we want to talk about leading we're not leading on that we're behind nations like japan and canada are taking care of those, their people and others in that way and we are not we are behind and we are a hegemon nation so there's really no excuse two thousand dollars and if i might make another point to that point we're not giving the american people anything the american people invested their tax dollars so why not you know the tax dollars need to come back to them in the form of relief. It's our money. And I want the voters, not just the voters, I want the citizens of this nation, the people of this nation to understand this. Elected officials not giving you anything. It's your money to begin with. That would be just like me, you know, in your house saying, no keys. They're your keys. That money belongs to the American people. Relief. So what's your biggest sense of when you look at the country today is the biggest divide in the country along the lines of partisan lines? Like, is it Democrat versus Republican? Is it on racial lines? Is it, you know, or is it the elite versus the people? How, how do you view as what's the biggest divide we have in the country today? Right and wrong. Now, under those categories, we can put all the things you just named, Kyle. Race relations, what does that look like? What does a just nation look like in terms of race? Are the things that we're doing right or wrong? We know that this country has pushed policies from, from building of highways to redlining uh, and other things that have been done that were wrong and exacerbated race relations that really relegated African-Americans to second-class citizenship. And we don't have to go all the way back to enslavement modern day things have happened in slavery my god you know just the unthinkable that this country did to africans and then their descendants uh, when we look at how the system is set up set up on purpose to deny the poor the working poor and the barely middle class true thrive status so the question becomes is what i am doing right or wrong is it right to ensure healthcare morally and economically? The answer would be yes. Is it right to cancel student debt and to reconfigure how, how, uh, uh, how college debt is accumulated in the first place? It is right to do that. Is it right to correct what we as human beings have done to Mother Earth and then to gather leaders from across the world, because we can't do that one on our own, is it right? Yes. Is it right to have green jobs and put people back to work while we're green in our country and have an infrastructure? Is it right that people have clean air, clean water, clean food? It is right. Is it right to face the... Jesus, I'm trying to be calm here. Is it right to correct the original sin of this country, enslavement? And then the taking away of our indigenous people land and to do something about that in the form of reparations to black people in this country. Yes, it is right. Is it going to be hard? Yes. But we got to face it. This country wouldn't be the nation, the hegemon nation that it is today without building it on the backs of enslaved Africans and then their descendants generation after generation after generation. Yeah, it's hard, but it's right. So to me, the biggest divide is about right and wrong. Yeah. Yep, I think that's really well said. And Nina, on that note, you know, over the summer, we had the largest protest movement in the history of the country, 
largest one. And there were significant changes effectuated at the local level. I don't want to take away from the activists who really forced that to happen, all the people that got out in the streets for that. At the federal level, there hasn't been one single change. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. But after the largest protest movement for black lives in American history, not one single change at the federal level. What accounts for that? What do you make of that? The unwillingness to to deal with this. People don't want to ruffle feathers. You are going to have to ruffle feathers on this period. And you know what, Krista, what the beautiful thing is now? The Democrats control everything. So we get a chance to fix that. That's the promise and the problem. We get to fix it. And shame on the federal level if it does not. It must be done. Again, words is a beginning. I don't want to diminish, far be it for order like myself, to diminish words. But you put those words out into the universe and you follow it up with action. H.R. Uh, 40, which was pushed by uh, Congressman John Conyers since the 80s, that is just the first step. Making sure that you have a justice department that is going to go into these states, into these cities and hold law enforcement agencies accountable when they do wrong, accountable at the federal level is the right thing to do. Decriminalizing and then legalizing marijuana is the right thing to do. And not only that. Make sure that the African-American community and our Hispanic sisters and brothers, the people who were the hardest hit by the war on drugs, reap an economic benefit. Because the last time I checked, when we look at states, for example, who have legalized marijuana, especially recreationally, there are very few, if any, African-American dominated companies. So let me get this straight. Black Folks went to jail, were locked up, lost their livelihoods and everything else attached to that. And now in states where it is legal, we can't even get in on the business side of it. Unacceptable. So not only decriminalize and legalize, but put rules in place. Be the referee. That's what the government is supposed to do. We need rules in place that ensure that the African-American community is not locked out on the economic side of that. So there are a plethora of things that this government can do. The federal government should do. Oh, no, voting. Okay, the the Supreme Court in Shelby v. Holder gave a challenge to that Congress. Come on, Congress, come through. Answer the challenge and correct what the Supreme Court did when it comes to to voting in in this country. So, Crystal, there are a whole bunch. I know you and Kyle probably have others, but that's that's a start. So if Joe Biden was in a good mood and he came to you and said, Nina, I'm in a good mood. I'll do one thing you ask me to do. No questions asked right now as president. What would that one thing be? That's a hard one. Oh, I know that's a hard one. God, Sorry to put you on the spot. So hard. <laughs> one thing. Well, well, first of all, let's hope I'm in a good mood too. We both got to be in a good mood together. Let me throw that out there. My mood matters too. My, my mood matters too. No, it, it would definitely be Medicare, Medicare for all. That That is it because that causes a ripple effect for every other thing. I mean, that would set so many people free to be Mm. entrepreneurs, to spend more time with their family, to not worry about if they lose their job, they don't have health care. Because without your health, you don't have wealth. That is the foundation. There are two things that are foundational to all the other great work that we do. One is our health and the other is taking care of Mother Earth. Without that, we can't fight for 
you know, fight for racial justice. We can't fight for environmental justice. You know, you name your 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 issue. We can't fight without those two things: having a healthy earth and making sure that people have health care. So it would be hands down Medicare for all. And what do you think is the best best path for progressives to force the issue of Medicare for all? Um, obviously, there was an effort to force a vote on it that didn't come to fruition. Um, Senator Sanders is out there pushing emergency universal health care as part of the budget reconciliation process, something that I think would be incredibly important because the fact of the matter is, once you give everyone health care, even if it's supposed to be on an emergency temporary basis, do you think the American people are really going to be like, OK, sure, fine, you can take my health care away again. It's That's totally OK with me. What do you think is the best next step on the path to getting universal health care? That is it. And very shrewd on the on the part of a senator. Bernard Sanders. That's it. No, there is no going back from that. It is, again, the right thing to do morally and the right thing to do economically. We know that there are countless studies out there, even coming from some of the Republican think tanks, that Medicare for all would not only save lives. I mean, they don't paint it in terms of saving lives. They talk about it more on the economic side. But sometimes, hell, what is good economically is good morally and good politically. And in Medicare for all, we have that. And so that emergency relief is to me, the best route to go. And also we got to have an outside, inside, outside, because it's one thing for the people on the inside to leverage the people's power. It's another thing for the people on the outside because they don't give up all of their power. They elect people and they give them a portion of their power. There's other powers out there too. And that is the activation of the American people to make the demand. If I can quote my dear friend, Killer Mike, Michael Render, we got to plot, plan, strategize, mobilize. That is what is necessary. So we need an inside-outside game. We need the people and activists on the outside to continue to push, even elected officials that they like, even pushing progressives, push, make the demand. And then we need elected officials with some intestinal fortitude, I'll keep it PG, who are going to utilize the mandate that they've gotten from the people to make the demand. And then there needs to be consequences, both from the outside forces and consequences on the inside to leverage in a way that gets us Medicare for all. We don't have a whole lot of time. I would, you know, this administration, they just don't. The, the Biden-Harris administration doesn't have the luxury of time. A pandemic has shaken everything up. Having a neo-fascist president has shaken everything up. And so we got two good years because we don't know what's going to happen after the two years. But what we do know right now is that the Democrats are in control for two good years. Baby, come on, let's go on and rock and roll and make it mean something. Let the American people know that were there when they needed the bowl, baby. Go bold. Um, so, Nina, this is my last question for you, then I'll turn it over uh, to Crystal. If you look back, like in 2016, you know, you were part of uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign, you know, the DNC did Bernie Sanders dirty in that, and then in 2020, we know that at the last minute, you had Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar drop out and endorse Biden at the last minute, kind of screwing Bernie again at the very, very last minute. I'm convinced that if they didn't drop out, the vote would have been split for the centrists and Bernie would have ended up winning. But Amen. let's say we could hop in a time machine and go back, and you're sitting there with Senator Sanders, and you say, listen, I need you to do this because I, you see what's coming. So what would you advise him to do differently where maybe he could have won even with them plotting against him? 
It would be two things. One, the electability argument we mm. started to lose mm. for whatever, you know, and I'm not here. We did. I was part of this campaign. So the electability argument, the neoliberals or the forces that did not want to see Senator Sanders become president of the United States of America. And we know that this is true because early on, even before he announced that he was going to run again, articles came out in mainstream media indicating that folks had been getting together at Martha's Vineyard meeting and saying basically anybody but Bernard Sanders that they were going mm -hmm. to plot to stop him. And guess what? Surprise, surprise. They did exactly that. So they put their cards out on the table very early. So one would be the electability argument that we should have leaned in more on that. And then secondly, it would be the contrast. Senator mm. Sanders is an absolute noble man. Even people who don't agree with him, there will be very few people who are honest who would not say that he is authentic and that he is noble. It doesn't make him perfect. None of us are perfect, but those two things without a doubt. I think that the senator should have contrasted himself more and his record more in his way. It didn't have to be done my way or anybody else's way, but he has a record of almost 50 years of being so consistent and so clear and so precise, the indictment on the system and also having recommendations and a vision for what was necessary to turn the tide. So whether it was Medicare for all or a Green New Deal or canceling student debt, you name it. Senator has been clear. You know, when he filibustered in 2010 for eight and a half freaking hours against a Democratic administration saying, don't you dare extend the Bush tax cuts. He wasn't just doing that for the citizens, for the residents of Vermont. He was doing that for Ohio. He was doing that for California. He was doing that for Illinois, Alaska, Hawaii, on and on. I'm shouting out states. My apologies for the states I didn't. He was doing that for the people, <laughs> even though he represented Vermont. And so that is the kind of clear-eyed, will not equivocate type of leadership that we need and that we have in Senator Bernie Sanders. So the two things, get back out there, you know, be clearer about the electability. And we made history. Remember, we won, we won Iowa. We mm. were, contrary to what the other mm -hmm. campaign said, we won <laughs> Iowa. We won New Hampshire. And baby, we brought the thunder and the rain in Nevada. Yes. <laughs> no other presidential candidate did that, like that in secession. Electability and making the contrast argument stronger. Yeah. It was incredible, um, apparently, at the inauguration, George W. Bush saying to Clyburn that he was the savior for stopping Bernie mm. from ascending my, to the nomination. My is heart. Isn't that sad? I'm in pain. Yes. Don't say Unbelievable. this. Unbelievable. <laughs> Saving no, us from too. the guy who wants everybody to have a good job, good wages, and health care. Can't possibly is. have that. Um, Nina, I don't have to tell you that, you know, for millions and millions of Americans, the situation's incredibly dire right now. They may have been sick. They may have lost loved ones. They may not have health insurance. They may not have a job. They may not have enough food for their family. Their kids may be out of school struggling with mental health issues. Inequality skyrocketing had this massive transfer of wealth upward in a country that was already, you know, the most unequal in the developed world. Um, serving that landscape and also adding into that the fact that the Democratic establishment was ultimately so successful at quashing the presidential campaign of, of Bernie Sanders. 
Do you feel optimistic? And if so, why? I do. And I agree with how you um, have laid out what happened and where we are now. But I do because I the spirit of the American people can never be underestimated. I feel hopeful because this grassroots bubbling up of working class people from all walks of life, all identities coming together in ways that we have not seen since the 60s gives me great hope and encouragement. See, hope, and I've talked to Dr. West about this a lot, hope is an action word. I want folks to understand that. Hope, hope ain't soft. It's an action word, just as love that there's going to continue to be a reckoning, not just based on what the polls have shown, but what we have seen from the Black Lives Matter movement to the bubbling up over the murder of George Floyd, you know, uh, uh, Brianna. I mean, God, I don't even want to start naming the names of African-Americans who have just died, you know, at the hands of of of, uh, of, of law enforcement, of, of police officers. But there is a bubbling up out there that is palpable. And we got to keep that going and we got to keep it going in the inside and outside. Both go hand in hand that the synergy between electing progressives who won't be afraid to wield power on the people's behalf and see leaders standing up and being in coalition and sisterhood and brotherhood with the people who they elect, who have the intestinal fortitude to stand up. A people, if everybody puts a little extra on their ordinary, extraordinary things will happen. I believe in it every single great moment. It's not just a belief that I have. We got receipts. If we look at the movement from abolition to the women's movement, to the movement of our gay, gay, lesbian sisters and brothers and transgendered and plus, we got much more work to do in that category. We look at movements from our uh, disabled or otherly abled sisters and brothers fighting for their rights to make sure that buildings are, are have the type of accommodations. I mean, just name any great change. And when I say great, I mean, that has altered not, not just the, the material conditions of people or the circumstances by which people have to navigate any, all, any and all of those great changes that have happened have happened because everyday people put a little extra on their ordinary and extraordinary things happen. That is true in every century of this country, and it is true right now in the 21st century. And that gives me immense hope. Well, you give me immense hope. And last question for you. Just give us a little update on the campaign. What happens next and where can people help you out? Oh, thank you for that. So I want to say how much I love and admire you and, and Kyle, Crystal. I'm so glad that you guys have, you talking about joining forces. We got two of our great progressive <laughs> champions in the, in the media and also in real life coming together and shaking it up, baby. I don't know if we're ready for that. So just love you both so much. The campaign is doing extraordinarily well and it is because of the grassroots. And so I just want to shout out and send my love. I am getting love from my state, love from my district, but also love from this nation. And that came because I was out there community to community, neighborhood to neighborhood, being out there on the front lines for the people in a ministry. I call it a ministry. Our average donation right now is $26. I am so excited about that because that means that people, that when I go to the Congress, everybody that gave that money, no matter the amount, but everybody who gave that money, I'm taking them them with me. We are touching people in ways heretofore that I don't think they've seen in a campaign 
uh, like this in a very long time. And even in the midst of COVID too, I mean, just think about what it's like to campaign in the midst of of COVID. So we're going to continue to push. I think that my Congresswoman will be confirmed. Her hearings will be next week. She'll probably be confirmed either next week or, or the week after. It looks like the special election will be May the 4th. So that means my campaign only has less than five months to bring this on home. We don't have a lot of time. And I am asking progressives from every walk of life and every part of this country to join this to continue joining this movement. They already have. Uh, we have raised money in all 50 states. It is nothing but sheer love that people are donating to this campaign, but we need more. This is going to be a fight. I'm going to have to fight to win this seat. And 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 I'm going to continue to do that. But it is because, you know, there's a song in the Christian tradition, love lifted me. I want to say that not only is love lifting me, but the grassroots in this nation are lifting me and they see in me the type of leader that they know will go there and, and they don't have to ask whose side I am on. And I, I'm going to congressional district with all my might as, as I have yeah. as a Cleveland or being Democratic nominee uh, for Secretary of State in Ohio. They can reach us and, and please give their time, their talent, or their treasure at ninaturner.com. Come on, baby, get in this fight with these hands. I used to say that on the campaign trail all the time, <laughs> but I mean that, baby. With these hands, with these hands, we are going to uh, have uh, transformation, and the Congress is poised. Democrats are poised to stand and deliver on behalf of the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class. And I am just a humble servant in this movement, on this mission. I am on assignment, baby. I think everybody knows that, and everybody sees that, and they know you're going to represent your district and the state of Ohio, but also be a voice for all working class and poor and working poor and barely middle class, to use all of the terminology that you did. Nina, it's so great to see you. We love you, too. Thank you. Thank you both. So, of course, amazing to talk to Nina Turner. And Kyle, I actually thought the question you asked and the thought that you had about how you're actually more excited about Nina being in Congress than you even were about Bernie Sanders potentially being president. And I actually think you're right about that because she clearly gets who the enemy is, like clear-eyed about that, and also knows like they're never going to like her. The establishment's never going to like her. They're never going to let her in the club. And she's willing to be hated by the media, smeared, smeared on Twitter, all of that stuff, and be an, you know painted as this horrible villain if it is in service of actually delivering for the people. Yeah, the thing about Nina that's very apparent to me is that she has the exact same theory of change that I do, which is like... If you're going to try to take over the system, um, it's got to be a hostile takeover. You can't go along to get along. You can't like try to hold hands and sing kumbaya with people who are corrupt, for example. And there are a lot of Republicans like that, and there are, the corporate Democrats are like that. So she differs from Bernie in the sense that with Bernie, even though I agreed with him on like 95 to 98 percent of his policy positions— he sometimes flirted with the idea of like, let's be hostile and take it over that way. And like, I'm going to go to West Virginia and campaign, you know, against Joe Manchin and say, do you have to support Medicare for all? Sometimes he would say that, but then other times he would have more of the vibe of like, uh, Joe Biden is my friend and I've known him for a long time. And like, it's go along to get along type stuff. So, you know, I really think that 
yes, you treat your allies like your allies, but you have to be clear-eyed about who your allies are and who your allies aren't. Nancy Pelosi's not your ally. She's just not. The corporate Democrats are not your ally. They're just not. You have maybe a dozen to 30, if I'm being kind, allies that are on the left in Congress. And you're right. Nina Turner gets that. And everybody else, I think, is somewhat naive. Like, the thing about her is she's a leader. And I underestimated how important that leadership role is. I naively thought, if you get in Washington, D.C., people who just agree with me nominally on the issues, that magically they'll know the strategy. But they don't. And Nina's one of the few who, who's a leader, and she's willing to do those Tea Party tactics. Yeah, and something that people, I think, forget about her is that she's been a legislator. Like, she knows how. She told us the story about working with John Kasich to really actually deliver for people. And um, so she has... She's a great mix of someone who is both extraordinarily idealistic, right? Extraordinarily principled and idealistic, but also super, like, pragmatic and super... um, hard-headed when it comes to tactics and what it actually takes to get things done. She has no qualms with working with any Republican if it's in service of an end that she thinks is just isn't going to ultimately deliver for the people. So I think that leadership role will also be, will absolutely be crucial. It seems like she's doing really well in her campaign, although she's obviously not taking anything for granted. But you know, Democratic leadership is going to do everything they possibly can to keep her out of the Congress. That's definitely true. I'm interested in seeing, assuming she gets there, does she have the capability to actually get the Justice Democrats to vote as a dedicated and disciplined block? Because if she can achieve that, honestly, the sky's the limit with how far we can push progressive change. Because... I think that's that's the biggest thing in our way right now. That's the biggest hurdle to success is that they don't vote as an organized block. But what we have seen, interestingly, is that as soon as one of them takes a risk, like when Cori Bush came up, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with this idea, by the way, but the argument of like, hey, if you were if you at all supported the insurrection or questioned the results of the election, then we want to expel you from Congress. There was like, Cori Bush came up with this idea and she started pushing it. As soon as one of them does something, the other ones are like, oh, me too, me too, I totally want, I'm with you, I want to do that. Now, I want that same mindset, but I want that mindset with ideas like force the vote and with ideas like force Biden to do the executive orders. So it's a matter of having that leadership but also having that discipline. And I think if anybody can actually corral all the Justice Democrats to really be disciplined, I think Nina Turner has a shot because also, just behind the scenes, she's the most beautiful, likable person on planet Earth. So it's like, you want to do good by her. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, I do know what you mean. Um, Yeah, progressives have a really unique opportunity should they choose to use it. First of all, Democrats overall have a lot of power. They have the White House, they have the Senate, they have the House. And yes, in the Senate, it is technically 50-50 with Kamala Harris. It's you get that 51 seat edge. So you can't get to the you know 60 vote threshold that you need to overcome the filibuster. That's going to be very challenging on most things. But you have this extraordinarily powerful tool through budget reconciliation. And this is what Bernie Sanders has really been pushing and has like prepared for years for this moment, understanding the extent of that tool. And by the way, Republicans gave him 
a, a massive talking point in how far you can take budget reconciliation because they used it to pass their gigantic corporate tax cuts. Mm. So it makes it really easy to say, well, look, they did it for this huge program. It's the biggest thing that they did during the Trump administration. They did that through budget, budget reconciliation. So surely we can do $2,000 checks. Surely we can do a $15 minimum wage. Surely we can do emergency universal health care for people during a pandemic and school funding and state and local funding if they were able to use this tool in this gigantic way. So you have this tool at your disposal. What are you going to force the Democrats to do with that tool? And by the way, again, you have to be willing to be the villain. You have to be willing to be the one standing in the way of the budget getting through, standing there and saying, no, I am not going to go along with this if it doesn't include emergency universal health care or if it does not include $2,000 checks or if it does not include $15 minimum wage. The opportunity and the leverage is 100% there if you're willing to pay the price in terms of what the media is going to say about you and how much your all of your colleagues are going to hate you. So let me ask you, what do you think they're going to get through budget reconciliation? Um, not the things that I just said. <laughs> so um, listen, I think if I so I think the Biden administration's approach is really stupid, such as what we've seen so far. And the reporting is that, like, they didn't even expect to win Georgia. So they're wildly unprepared, which just blows my mind, but really shouldn't. I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm still surprised. Um, but look, they're going to try, I think, to get a big relief bill through regular order and they're going to fail. And then I think through budget reconciliation, they'll do state and local aid. I think they'll do $1,400 checks and some vaccine money, some school money, some things like that. I don't know if they'll push it even to do the $15 minimum wage. I don't have any confidence there. And I think without massive progressive pressure and the sort of tactics that we're talking about, I don't think there's any chance that they do emergency universal health care, even though to me that piece is extraordinarily important. Because again, if you give people health care, you can't then take, people aren't going to let you take it back. Like that's a real step on the road, a significant step on the road to single payer ultimately. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. Um, you know, I think that when it comes to reconciliation, I think that they're really going to default to what Joe Manchin will allow them to pass through reconciliation, mm -hmm. as terrible as that sounds. And, uh, you know, Bernie had that article the other day where he lays out, here's everything we should do, and it's a very long list of things to do. And obviously that's not going to work because you're going to lose people like Cinema and Manchin and Warner. Um, so it's a matter of what will they allow through. And, you know, hey, I'll give the optimistic take for a second here. I do think it's possible that you get some more checks, I'm not going to say 2,000 because they already backed off that to 1,400 because they're weaselly pricks and assholes. But you get some checks, right? And then you can, I think, package $15 minimum wage with that. And you can put maybe two or three other things that are economically focused that can get through. And then you do that with budget reconciliation. And, you know, for then you get two more cracks at it, right? You get to do budget reconciliation three times a year or three times a year, is yeah. it? Yes. Okay, so... Yeah, I think that um, that's that's the the positive spin on it. That maybe you get that, and listen, that would help a lot of people. That would help a lot of people. And it's just a matter of like we've been talking about, how much is the left willing to play hardball and willing to be the villain? Because here's the dirty little secret: even though you're the villain in the moment, and you're the villain in Washington D.C., and you're the villain in corporate circles, 
to the American people, you're the hero. And like history will judge that kindly. It's almost like this Edward Snowden and Julian Assange situation where like everybody tries to pretend in the moment and like in DC, like, oh my God, he's terrible and he's, you know, aiding the enemy or whatever. And it's like, you're all living under a delusion. The history books are already judging these people as like heroes that are being oppressed. You know what I mean? Yep. Sorry, that was a random yeah. pivot, but I'm done talking now. No, <laughs> it's a great example that you gave with uh, Assange and Snowden. And Bernie Sanders is proof positive of this, like completely hated by the media even though he was, in my opinion, really too nice to them, completely hated by the Democratic establishment and by all of the establishment to the point that George W. Bush is thanking Clyburn for being the savior for keeping Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination and yet most popular politician in America. So there you go. Yeah, there is a real big, there's a breakdown in perception on how things are viewed in D.C. versus how things are viewed among the people and you know another great example right and i mean but you could literally see this when it comes to every single issue the actual issues whether it's minimum wage or you know medicare for all or free college or raising taxes on the wealthy or raising taxes on corporations and i think the thing that um the thing that shocks me even to this day although it's probably naive that this still shocks me is like how the media goes along with it and the media goes along with it so much so that conventional wisdom is always the polar opposite of what the reality is, that they like to say the country is like, oh, it's a moderate country or it's a center right country. And, you know, people want people agree ideologically with somebody like Biden and Bernie's too extreme. And it's like, well, actually, no, if you go to the actual issues, that's not the case, that they're actually people are actually with Bernie on the issues. And there were even polls during the election that showed that when you ask people on these actual issues, where do your sympathies lie? Everybody said. It's minor with Bernie. But the problem was, as Nina Turner alluded to, this issue of electability as well, which is, you know, people perceive that Bernie wouldn't be able to beat Trump because you think that other people are going to think that Bernie is too extreme, even though you all agree with Bernie on all the issues. And then, you know, that was basically his downfall. Yeah. And so even on Inauguration Day, even after they've defeated him and their guys literally ascending to the White House, they still have to be out on the cable news networks making the case why you can never, ever go down the Bernie Sanders-like populist path, that that must be forever closed no matter how much you want health care, no matter how much you want decent wages, and good job. There's just no way you can have that or else you're going to end up with a fascist like Donald Trump. So um, fantastic talking to Nina. She does give me truly a lot of hope because I do think she could be that kind of difference maker in Congress. She says the election likely to be set for May. So we won't have too long to wait before we see whether she's able to take that seat. That's right. And I fully expect the knives to come out for her and the media to really aggressively go after her. But listen, like I said, she's one of the few that um, gets unity among the left, among the actual left. There is unity in defending our beloved Nina Turner. So anyway, <laughs> Nina's awesome. You guys are awesome. Thanks for listening. We love you. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.